did you sign me in? Dad, did you sign me in? <laughs> I would forget every time. All right, so some of you might know that we're showing a movie here tonight. And uh, you can be praying for us because I'm trying to make sure the projector actually works tonight. So we've got to replace the bulb today. I just found that out after first service. So I'm going to pray about it because it, God's interested in all that stuff. Lord, thank you for our projector. And we pray that a new bulb would be able to be installed and not create problems. And we pray that as many people as want to see the chosen can see the chosen tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we laid that at the feet of Jesus. We're going to move forward. Exodus chapter 24 this morning. And as you're going there, um, just a couple of announcements. Uh, the movie is tonight at 6. You can get here a little early if you want. We'll, be, we'll have some popcorn, and, uh, and then you can get checked in and have plenty of time to get to your seat. And then um, Friday, December 24th, you might have heard of it, Christmas Eve is happening. And we will be having our Christmas Eve service at 6.30 p.m. It's just a real simple night of worship, and we read the Christmas story. And then uh, our youth will not be meeting tonight uh, so that they can come and watch uh, The Chosen with us. So if you haven't gotten your tickets yet, there are still some left. And if we need to put out more chairs, we will. I think we've sold like 150 or 160 uh, tickets so far. So again, none of that money goes here. It's all going towards the Chosen Project. It doesn't cost us anything to show it, uh, but it also doesn't pay us anything. We're just excited to be able to watch it ourselves and glad that there's a bunch of people that are going to join us. So that being said, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 24, and I will remind you that in the last couple of chapters, God has been dispersing. He's been passing out, handing out, teaching Moses the laws that he wants his nation to be governed by. And those laws are uh, very specific. Uh, if they're broken, there are punishments involved. Um, but with that being said, now that the laws have been given to Moses, Moses is going to come down off of the mountain and he's going to share them with the people of God. Now, verse 1. God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now, there's a call to worship. And in this call to come close, this invitation from God, he says, I want you to come and I want you to worship. But notice that he says, from afar. Because in the Old Testament, and really in our day, not just anybody can approach God. There is a specific way to approach God. There's a specific way you can get into his presence without being utterly consumed because God is holy and we are sinful. And so in order to deal with that vast gap between holiness and sinfulness, there has to be an entrance fee paid. There needs to be atonement. And atonement is simply this. If you want to figure out what the Bible word means, it means to make someone at one with someone else. At one meant reunified. And so the way that we are reunified with God is through blood. As messy as that can be and as horrifying as that can be, 
It's only the blood of Jesus that could reconcile us, that can make our account be gone back to righteous instead of wicked and sinful. And so the blood being poured out pays the way for us to be bought back from sin and the slavery of sin and invite us in to the presence of God. And so in verse 1, he says uh, to Moses, come up to the Lord and worship from afar. And Moses, notice he says in verse 2, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near. So Moses can come near the Lord, but all the others listed, the 70 elders, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron, they're not asked to be as close as Moses is. Moses alone will come before the presence of the Lord, but everyone else shall come near, but worship from afar. Sounds kind of like a contradicting phrase, doesn't it? Come near to me, just not too close. Reminds me of the song by the police, I think. Don't stand so close to me, right? So that's, that's what God is saying, Very, except not in jest. He's saying, come close, worship me, but do it from afar lest you be consumed by me. And that's the reality. If you come on your own merit, you will be consumed. There will be no, hey, you know, he tried hard. It, it doesn't work that way with God. He says, come to me one way through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see an Old Testament type of that today. It says, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So the call is to come close, but to not come so close that they would be consumed. So Moses came, and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the word judgments there really just means ordinances. Uh, These are the ways that you should live amongst one another. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now, maybe you're not like me, but maybe you are. And you've been given instructions, maybe by your spouse or by your parents. And they said, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this. And you might have said something like, all that you have said, I will do. But you weren't listening. You were listening, but you weren't intently leaning in and listening. And so you said, I'm going to do it all. And then you get done, and they're like, that's not what I said at all. Or maybe you're like someone who would update the operating system on their phone or on their computer or download software, and there's this little thing that comes up and says, do you accept the terms and conditions? And you all, of course, you read all of it, and then you hit yes, right? No? You got, I read it all. No, I don't. I, I click it, and I go, I don't, ain't nobody got time for that. And I go, I accept the terms, whatever. And I could probably be offering up my firstborn as a ransom for some Egyptian king somewhere that's held somebody, you know, it's like one of those email forwards. Who knows what they wrote in there? And there's probably stuff in there we don't agree with, but we just go, accept, I want to use my phone. And that's the reality. God has given to them the terms of the covenant, the agreement between them and God. He says, these are the terms, do you accept them? And what they say, when Moses comes off the mountain, he recounts them to the Israelite people, and they say, all that God has said, we will do. Well, what are these ordinances? Well, verse 3, he says, all that Moses told the people, the words and the judgments. 
Well, those words and judgments started in Exodus chapter 20. And we know them as the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And, but that's just the top ten. From that point, Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, through chapter 23, verse 33, is everything we've read in the last couple chapters. And if you'll remember, they said, we don't want to hear the voice of God. It's too much for us. It's overwhelming. And so Moses said, I will go and receive them. And so Moses becomes the mediator between man and God, and he receives all the commandments, and then he comes down off the mountain, and he, he recounts them. He, he shares them with the entire congregation, and, and as he shares them, they know that him sharing them means that they have a response to what he has said. God said this, how do you respond? And they say, we'll do all that he said. And so Moses, right after this, takes the time to write all the words of the Lord, verse 4. He takes what God has told him. He tells it to the people as a testimony. This is what God said. And then he writes it down. So there's the spoken word, the confession of the word, and then there's the writing down of the word. Why? Because it makes it permanent. Once it's written and it gets read to everybody, there's accountability. You can't just change it. You can't just make it whatever you want. That's the Word of God. That's the importance of it. That's why we trust in it, because for centuries it's been written down. And by the way, if they find an Old Testament copy, which they found in the Dead Sea, and they compare it to what was written over 600 years ago or longer, there's slight differences, but it's usually they forgot to dot an I or cross a T or in their verb. And in their verbiage, it's, uh, you know, every jot and every tittle. And so the idea is, is that we can trust in what has been said because there's been records kept. It's not just something that was made up centuries later. And so Moses came, he wrote all the words of the Lord, and then notice this, he rose early in the morning and he builds an altar. And not only does he build an altar— at the foot of the mountain, he builds 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And so he's read the covenant, or excuse me, he's spoken the covenant. He knows what it says. He's thought about it a lot. He speaks it to the people. They immediately agree to it. They accepted the terms and the conditions without reading all of it and considering the weight of it and the consequences of it. And then he gets nervous because he knows what the children of Israel are capable of. We'll do it all. And he's like, I don't know. Are you sure? Are you really going to do it all? Because this is serious. You're going to be held culpable for how you do or don't uphold this. You're agreeing to something very stout here. And so in the midst of that, he doesn't sleep well. And it seems to me that he stays up all night writing down what God had told him and what the people have agreed to. He's drawing up the papers, if you will. If they're going to make a covenant, they need a contract. They need a written agreement between the two people, or the two parties. So after he writes down all the words that he's been shown, he then gets up and he builds an altar first thing in the morning. He's like, man, if these people have agreed to this, we're going to need to make atonement for their sin because I guarantee they've already broken it by this point. So he builds an altar knowing that they're not going to keep it up. He makes a sacrifice. 
says there in verse 5, excuse me, verse 4, not only does he build one altar, he builds 12 pillars. So there's one place to do business with God, and it's over one altar, one way to worship God, one altar, one place to make sacrifice. And this is where God would meet with his people is at the altar. He does business with them. But as he's doing business with them, Moses builds 12 pillars to represent every tribe of the nation so that they're all represented during the time of the sacrifice. He's playing the role of a priest. He represents God to the Israelites, and he represents the Israelites to God. He's interceding for them. He's praying for them like they probably don't know how to pray for themselves because they don't realize the seriousness of this agreement. And so he builds the altar, he builds the pillars, and then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. We're going to see this later in Leviticus, but the burnt offering is described in Leviticus chapter 1. And I know all of you spend lots of time in Leviticus because you want to know what pieces to cut off the animals and how to drain the blood and all that stuff. But if you're ever reading through Leviticus, it's all types and shadows of Jesus Christ. And so if you get lost in the fatty lobes and what parts to burn and what parts to throw outside the camp, it's all about Jesus. That's what you need to know. But in Leviticus chapter 1, it describes the burnt offering. It's called a whole burnt offering. And they would sacrifice and burn the entire thing. They're saying, this animal is completely yours. But before they would burn that offering, they would slit its throat to kill it, and they would drain the blood entirely out. And they would use it for other purposes than to just be burned up. And so it says there that these burnt offerings, they're completely consumed, Leviticus 1. And then they sacrificed peace offerings, which you can find in Leviticus chapter 3. And the peace offering is different than the burnt offering because the burnt offerings completely consumed by fire. But the peace offering, again, draining the blood. But then half of it, or a portion of it, is given to the Lord. It's completely, the half of it is consumed by God. And half of it is set aside and cooked a certain way so that those who offered the sacrifice would partake of it. They would eat it. And so essentially they're making preparations, not just to sacrifice, but then to sit down and have a meal with the creator of the heavens and the earth. They're going to eat with God, fellowship with God. And the most intimate thing you can do with someone from the Middle East to this day is to sit in their home and eat food with them. Because if you're eating from the same loaf, you're essentially saying, we are one now. We're one. We're not two separate entities. Now, because we've partaken of the same loaf, from the same loaf of bread, we're one. We're family. We're closer than family. We're all, not quite one flesh, but man, close. That's why communion is so important. We eat the bread. We eat from the same loaf, which is Jesus Christ. We drink of the same blood or the fruit of the vine, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. We're all equal. There's not one of us better than the other. We are all submitted, surrendered to Jesus Christ and his lordship. So when we sit down at a meal together, that's what we remember. He's the man none of us are. 
And so with that being said, they, they make these offerings. And Moses does something interesting in verse 6. He took half the blood and he put it in basins. And then he took half the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar. Now you could imagine if I got up here with a, a basin of blood and I start sprinkling stuff, you guys are going to turn tail and run because that's creepy, right? It'd be creepy. You've seen it on uh, Indiana Jones movies or, you know, uh, uh, Dragnet. Wasn't that in Dragnet where they sprinkled the blood and they're killing it and it's like the Satan worship thing and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. By the way, if you Google sprinkling blood, Satan has taken what God meant for a holy ceremony and he has completely perverted it. You can hardly find any pictures of just a priest sprinkling blood on the altar of God, but you can find all kinds of cult movies and horror movies, and and it's all to twist what it was. There's life in the blood. Blood's not about death. It's about life. And we've twisted it, and we've made it something what it was not supposed to be. That blood sprinkled on the altar is to deal with sin. It's showing that something innocent was slain so that the blood sprinkled gives life instead of death. It's a substitute for us. It's a gift. You know as well as I do that if you're in a car wreck and all your blood drains out, what happens? You die. You got no life in you. So people donate blood so you can have more blood put into your veins so you can live. And so, obviously, I'm a little passionate. So Moses took half the blood, and he put it in basins. What for? Well, he sprinkled half of it on the altar, and he sprinkles the other half, verse 8. Moses took the blood, the blood that was in the basins, and he sprinkled the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This is the blood of the covenant that makes you have access into God's presence without being consumed. Remember, the chapter began with God inviting them closer to worship from afar. But you can't come and worship God until there's been a blood sacrifice on your behalf. But before that, verse 7 says, Before they're sprinkled with the blood... Moses reads the words that he wrote down. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant. He read in the hearing of the people. And they said, after hearing the word read, they said, all that the Lord has said we will do. Which they've already said that, right? So they said it again after hearing it read, not just spoken. They had already made a verbal covenant and said, we agree. But now they're saying, now that we've heard it read... All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. So essentially they're saying the same thing twice. All the things that the word has said by the Lord will do it and will be obedient to it. So they're doubling down literally on their confession of faith. What God has said we will do. Now we know from reading, I don't know how much of it, like this much. All that God has said, they will not do. We can know that ahead of time. Spoiler alert. They will not do it. But that's okay because that's why the blood is necessary. The law was never meant to save. It only brought death when sin came. 
The law was meant to lead us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to get rid of the law. It's still just as relevant today. But it's the schoolmaster that was meant to lead us to Christ. If you read the law and go, man, I'm nailing it, then you're missing it because you're not nailing it. If you read the law and say, wow, I can't do most of that, then you get it. You can't do any of it. You need a Savior. You need someone to pray for you. You need a, a sacrifice to cover your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because the law is a mirror that reveals how wicked we truly are. It exposes our hearts for what they really are. And so, all that said, I want you to focus in real quick on verse 8. I know I already read it, but Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. And in Luke chapter 22, got it wrong in the first service, and I want to not miss this. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. As Jesus was handing out Passover for the very first time, not Passover, but the Lord's Supper, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, as he is giving the first real Passover with the first real Passover lamb present, verse 20, he says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. I love that. The Old Testament is just getting you ready for the New Testament, and then Jesus goes, hey, by the way, what Moses said there in Exodus 24, it was about me. Here I am. And so when he would read that at Passover, by the way, some of them were sitting there and they go, oh, it all makes sense now. I thought the creepy basins and Tupperware full of blood were creepy now, but now I get that it was all about the atonement for my sin. And even the disciples wouldn't truly get it until after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so Moses read the book of the covenant. They accept the terms and they say, we'll be obedient. And then the covenant is sealed in blood. And I want to point out two things from that. Notice what happened. Moses read the words that God spoke to him. And Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. So they couldn't express faith in that covenant and what God had said and all the words that were spoken by God to Moses unless they heard the words. By the way, do you know that the word of God is supposed to be spoken? It's supposed to be spoken out loud. Don't be afraid. God wants us to hear the word of God and confess it with our lips. It's the first fruit of our lips. But then John chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus said to his disciples, as he was telling them to abide in the vine, and he's given this analogy of how, um, you know, he's the vine and they are the branches, and apart from me, you can do no good thing. But he says before that, before he says, apart from me, you can do no good thing, he says, you are already cleansed because of the words that I have spoken to you. That the words that God speaks to us actually have this cleansing effect and they purify our lives. And if you know anything about the Word of God and you've tried to read it and you've understood and you've taken the pieces that you get and tried to apply them, you know that's true. That the Word of God heard and then put into practice practically cleanses your life. It makes you righteous in the sight of God. 
But then, after hearing the word and believing it and professing faith in what it says to be true, the blood is now applied to them personally. It says there in verse 8 that he sprinkled the blood on the people and then said, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And so the same blood that purifies the altar where the sacrifice would be made is the same blood that's being sprinkled on the hearers. But in Exodus, so far, when we've seen blood sprinkled or applied, it's been applied to a household. But God's pointing forward past this Passover festival where under the blood of this innocent lamb, they were all saved from the death in their household. Now he's saying, it's not about your household. You can't be saved because your grandpa's grandpa's uncle's cousin's brother was a Christian and now you're part of a Christian family. But what he's saying is, we all have to have that blood applied to us by faith. Now, I do want to point out something I forgot to in first service, and that is that the blood that's applied to our lives brings salvation. It's what makes us born again. It's what makes us righteous. Our, our filthiness has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and in exchange for his righteousness, we give him our unrighteousness. He dies for it on the cross. He took the payment for our sin that turns away the wrath of God. But the same blood that saves you And we all need that blood. There's no one that can come except through the blood of Christ to God the Father. But the same blood that saves you or saved you in the past has made you a redeemed person is the same blood that you need applied to your life regularly to have present day forgiveness of your sins. You still sin. How do I deal with that practically? Apply the blood. How do I apply the blood? Communion. Communion with God is applying the blood. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. That's creepy. Unless you realize what he's saying is, unless you have fellowship with me regularly. Now, does that mean that if you sin tomorrow and you don't take communion right afterwards, then it doesn't matter? No, that's a work. But remembering that it's the blood of Christ that saved you in the first place helps you to remember that the blood of Christ is is able to cleanse you and to purge you of your sin practically in the daily life. It's just, it's all about remembering and giving thanks for what makes us right, truly right in the sight of God. Now I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And in verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. You've not come to the blackness and darkness and tempest. You've not come to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. That's what the Israelites experienced. There was a trumpet sound. There was thunderings. There was lightnings. It was overwhelming. It was scary. And God says, through the pen of the writer of Hebrews, you've not come to that mountain. He says, they could not endure what was commanded because what was commanded is, if you so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. should be killed for being too close to God. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Of all people, Moses was scared. 
He says, you've not come to that mountain. And I praise God for that, by the way. I don't know that I would have been able to take it. I probably would have agreed and said, I'm going to do it all. Just, just make this scariness go away. He says, but you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, who is the mediator. He's the best defense attorney ever. Because when Satan says, that one's unrighteous, that one's unholy, Jesus leans in and says, yeah, but they trusted me. And God the Father says, now I see the Son in whom I'm well pleased, instead of you or I. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. What did the blood of Abel speak? Remember that? Cain and Abel, Old Testament. Adam and Eve have two sons, and guess what? Sibling rivalry starts. And Cain kills Abel, and God says, I've heard the voice of Abel's blood speaking out against you, Cain. I know what you did. It speaks out against you because of what you've, done, you've murdered. And yet the blood of Jesus, who was also unrighteously murdered, is sprinkled and it speaks better things. It speaks grace, grace to it. It speaks forgiveness, not condemnation. And so we have that offered to us. And so the covenant has been ratified. It's been signed by the blood of the innocent victim that was killed on their behalf. And now because of that, they are welcomed in because you cannot approach God without sacrifice. So who is, who, who's able to see? Verse 9, verse 9. Moses went up and also Aaron and Nahab, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. The word of God will help you see the Lord because it cleanses your sight. It purges our eyes. It, it has this way of cleansing what we're seeing versus what we can see. Now it says there that once they went through the sacrifice, they approached God as he had asked them to in verse 1. Verse 10 says, they saw the God of Israel. Now wait a minute. John chapter 1 verse 18 says that no man has ever seen God. How is this possible? Well, let's go there to John chapter 1. Verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So no one has seen God at any time, but the Son came to declare God the Father. So then turn to chapter 6 in John, in verse 46. And there it says, Jesus speaking says not that anyone has seen the Father. He's saying the same thing John did. Except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Who's that? 
Jesus. He's seen the Father. That's how he can declare the Father, verse 18 of chapter 1. And then if you turn with me to John in chapter 14, this will be the last John reference, I promise. John chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. Huh, interesting. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. And then Jesus says to him, Have I been with you for so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, So how can you say, show us the Father? (laughs) And so look at this. Nobody has seen God at any time, and yet Jesus Christ has declared him. Jesus Christ has seen seen him. And so if you've seen Jesus Christ, he says, you have seen him. You've seen God. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, it says in, in former days, in previous times, God has chosen to reveal himself to the law and the prophets. And yet in these last days, he has shown us the glory and the full representation of God the Father. He's the direct image and likeness of God the Father. He's Jesus Christ. And so what does all this say? That they saw God, even though no one has seen God, I believe what they saw was Jesus Christ up there on the mountain. That they saw him in all of his glory in a vision. They didn't see him directly. And yet what we see here is that his feet, under his feet, were a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Which describes what John the Apostle saw. Interestingly enough, he was trying to see the Father. He was trying to see Jesus. And at the end of his life, he was taken to the island of Patmos by himself. And God gives him a a vision, because that's what revelation means, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he sees him, guess what? He's standing on this paved work of stone with clarity. It's beautiful in all of its presence, much like what we have here in Exodus. So, He sees Jesus. And on the nobles, verse 11, of the children of Israel, in other words, the 70, and Nadab and Abihu, and Aaron, and all those who were were present, it says that he, the God of Israel, did not lay his hand. In other words, his presence was there, and yet it was divided still. They weren't directly in fellowship. But even though he did not lay his hand on them, even though they were not fully in his presence somehow that words can't describe, they saw God and they ate and they drank. They ate with God. So they made the sacrifice, the blood atoned, it was completely consumed and accepted by the Father, the peace offering was given, half of it was consumed on the altar the other half was given and kept and no doubt they put it in a knapsack or something they took it up with them into the presence of god and what did they do with it something kind of practical they ate it they had a picnic with god but they didn't get there without going through the blood right they can't just go in willy-nilly they have to go in the way that god prescribes 
And so, the elders are in his presence, not completely. They have God revealed to them, but they're not touched by him. There's still a a gap there. But even though that's the case, there's differing fellowship with God in the Old Testament. Even though that's the case, they all got to eat in God's presence with him, with the peace offering. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. Here at the end of the service, we're going to take communion. And that's simply what communion's about. Behold your God in all of his magnificence. How holy and how awesome and how powerful. And yet he considers us and he provides a bridge for us to to go across the gap that is between holy God and sinful man. Behold how wonderful that is. And how gracious and how merciful. And yet when they got to his presence, the holiest thing he could give them to do is to eat with him. Intimate. You know, no doubt they're smacking on their cracker. You know, they're, they're eating their meat. They're drooling on themselves, getting food on themselves. And that's what God wants. God wants us to fellowship with him simply eating food together. What does food do? It sustains our life. What's God's presence do for us? It sustains our life. And so it's beautiful in its presence. So Moses is called up in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there. The ministry of presence, just be. Be with me there. And while you're there, I will give you tablets of stone and I will give you the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. I want to point out something that might be obvious, but it needs to be said. If you don't like the law of God, if you don't like the word of God, I didn't write it. I didn't come up with it. Moses didn't come up with it. I guarantee that when he came down and said, thus saith the Lord, there was people within that mixed multitude that said, I don't like it. And Moses didn't write it. If you don't like what this Bible says, take it up with him. Because there's some stuff I don't want to teach either. Because it calls me to the carpet and says, where's your heart really at, Mingy? God is growing us and maturing us grace to grace, faith to faith, and little by little, step by step. Here a little, there a little. And you know what? We're not going to get it all in one swallow. That's okay. But once you get it, you're accountable for what it says. And so as they're approaching, God says, Moses, come up to me so you can receive from me. Come up, and I'm going to give you something you need because Moses has been called to teach. Notice that Moses has not been called to create curriculum. That's why we don't write any. That's why I don't come up with some snappy jingles. That's why we don't have programs. We simply go through the Word of God because I feel like it must be important if God went through all the work, through all the different people, inspiring it, and keeping it in one volume for us. It's important. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And if you think it's just the New Testament, hopefully by now you're seeing that it's not. And if you think it's just the Old Testament, hopefully you'll see that that's a hopeless venture. That we need the whole Bible to make us mature in the faith. And so I'm off my hobby horse now. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 through 8. 
Jesus said to his disciples as he sent out, sent them out to heal. And he sent them out to proclaim. He said, freely you have received from me. Now go out and give it out freely. So I'm commissioning you right now. Hear what God's word says. Spend time with him and go out and share freely. Because he gave it freely. As a matter of fact, his disciples in Mark chapter 3 verse 14, when he picked the 12, it says he picked 12 to be with him. By the way, we're called to be with him. Not just, not just to go, but to be with him, to be. And then to go be sent by him. You want to know our, what our evangelistic program here is at the church? Be with Jesus, each one of us, myself included, and be sent by Jesus. That's the Great Commission, simply. And so, verse 13, So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, who apparently shows up out of nowhere. Kind of like Jesus in the New Testament. All these Old Testament saints are following the law. They're doing all this. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a root comes up out of dry ground. A kingly family that, that had long since been forgotten, that was passed on through Joseph. Here comes Jesus. In the fullness of time comes Jesus, seemingly out of nowhere, just like Joshua. Joshua's not even mentioned in this chapter as being one that was invited, and yet he wasn't invited, but he came. Jesus wasn't invited, by the way. Not by the world, but he came. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and he went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron... And then another man, Hur, are with you. They were the men that held up Moses' arms during the battle in Exodus that we saw a few chapters ago. If any man has a difficulty while we're gone, then you need to talk to Aaron and Hur. This will not go so well for them because you know that Moses will be on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and they're going to go, what happened to Moses? What happened to our God? And they're going to go to Aaron and Aaron's going to go, give me all your earrings. Give me all your gold, and he's going to melt them down, and he's going to make a golden calf. That's terrible, but that's what happens. He left somebody in charge, and the person in charge made some assumptions. But Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh day he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Six days of God's presence. He went up on the mountain. He was where God told him to be. And God said nothing for six days. Can you imagine? Didn't you call me to be up here to receive? What, when are you going to give me something? He has to wait. He has to be patient. He has to be still. He needs to be where God told him to be, whether it makes sense to him or not. If you want to hear from God, you have to do these things. Be where he tells you to go. Listen for his voice and be patient. But on the seventh day, he's rewarded for waiting. The Lord called to Moses on the seventh day, and he spoke. Verse 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Seems like what Moses saw first in his early relationship with God. A, cons a, a bush that was burning but not consumed but it looked like a consuming fire but it didn't make sense because it wasn't consuming to those who were down off of the mountain 
to those who are outside of the presence of the glory of God, to those that aren't close to God, all he looks like is a consuming fire. All we can see is what will burn up if we get close to him. But once you get close to God, you realize that the stuff that does burn up, you didn't need. And then you realize that the glory of God is way better than any of the stuff that you were unwilling to get let go of before. Right? And so Moses is in the presence of God. He sees the unfading glory of God and the people below, they just see the all-consuming fire of God. That's what it looked like to the children of Israel outside of the mountain. But verse 18 says, so Moses went into the midst. He just kept going closer and closer. And that was Moses' life, by the way. His whole life was God calling him in closer and then calling him in closer and then calling him in closer. And every time that he obeyed by faith and went closer to the Lord, by the way, it cost him every time. Every time he got closer to God, something else got burned away. But Moses went into the midst of the cloud and he went up into the mountain and he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was there, he didn't eat a thing. 40 in the Bible is a type of testing. And we'll see Jesus do the same thing. As soon as he's baptized in the New Testament, Jesus is called away by the Spirit into the desert to be with the Father for a time of testing. And so, I would ask you this morning, as the group dwindles, and the closest to God, there's less people, and less people, and less people, and there will be. Many are called, but few are chosen. And I don't understand that, but I'm thankful that the Lord gave me faith to continue to press into his presence. But why is Moses the only one that goes into the presence of the Lord? Because he was the only one invited. What about you and I? How close can you and I get to God? How close do you want to be to God? Maybe that's the better question. Are you invited? The answer in Jesus Christ is yes. How close does he want you? Well, let me answer that for you. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 15, the Bible tells us that he passed through the heavens to come near to us. That's how close he wants us to him. He said, I'm not going to wait for you to come to me. There is no one who seeks God after God. No, not one. We don't find God. He comes and finds us. He leaves the 99 to come to the one. That passage also says that he wants us close. We know this because he took on human flesh. He didn't have to, to be tempted as we are, and yet he never sinned. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he shed his blood to pay our sin debt so we could be near him. How close does he want you? He wants you as close as you're willing to be. He's invited you. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, in light of this truth, let us draw near boldly. We don't have to wince and slowly climb the mountain. He says, come on in. But come on in through my son, Jesus. Boldly, he says, because he gave his life to bring us near. So to you who are afar off still, the invitation is come, but come through Jesus. To those of you that who have already come in, The invitation is, come in closer. You're not close enough yet, but it might cost you. 
J. Oswald Sanders says, we are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. Do you know that? You are as close to God as you want to be because the invitation and the red carpet's been rolled out. The red carpet is covered in his blood. We're invited in. You're as close as you want to be. Don't blame God if you feel distant. It's you that needs to make the choice. True, there are times when we would like to know a deeper intimacy with God. But when it comes to the real downright point, we are not prepared to pay the price involved. So, that being said, Jesus has invited us to his table. He's invited us into fellowship. And I want to invite you who are in Christ already, come and partake of the table this morning. The ushers are going to come up. They're going to hand out the blood or the, the juice and the cracker. And we're going to remember and we're going to take communion. We, the offering and the peace offering, we don't even have to make this morning. It's beautiful. All we have to do is come and partake of the offering that's already been made. The Old Testament said, here's what to do and live. The New Testament says, it's done. It's finished. Come and take I invite you in. So this morning as we take communion, I want to invite you in. Behold your God and eat and drink before him. So we're going we're gonna to play a song. You guys can come up and get the, or excuse me, the elements will be passed out. And then after that, we'll take them together. So Father, we thank you for this clear picture of Jesus Christ in the law. We thank you for Moses, the mediator, who risked it all to come into your presence. And yet he came into your presence because of the blood. And we come in just like he did. Except we don't have to be worried whether or not the animal was perfect or blemishless or spotless. We come in under the blood blood and the body of Jesus Christ. The perfect lamb of God. The lamb that was given, uh, he was slain for the sin of the entire world. And yet, many still reject that offering. And so, Father... We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that we can now be in your presence and not be consumed. And that it's not just a few people invited, but we've all been invited. Lord, we just confess we're not worthy, but we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sorry when I've 
So Father, thank you. I don't have much to add to that. Forgive me. So many times I'm so worked up about the stuff and the things and what I can receive and yet you've already given us it all. Thank you for Jesus, the gift. I pray that this just sticks so clearly in our minds as we get ready for Christmas, that the gift has already been given and we're already recipients of the blessing attached to that gift. It's your presence. Thank you, Lord. God with us, Emmanuel. So, Father, we simply say thank you for the bread of life in Jesus Christ. Amen. And I thank you at the same time that you didn't just give us the bread. You gave us the cup of the new covenant. I'll lift up the cup, the cup of salvation, and drink deeply from it, Lord, because you gave it and because you're worthy of such celebration. Thank you for your selflessness. Thank you for pouring out every single drop and then covering us in it. So we're no longer guilty of the blood. We're recipients of it. And because of that, we're invited in boldly. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we worship for this last song, I want to invite you to pass your cups to the center. The ushers will come by and pick them up as we sing. God bless you guys. What an amazing, amazing gift we've been given. I hope that really resonates with you like it did with me this morning.